0: Well, I'm the kind of guy, I like to figure things out on my own. And so you'll never see me like taking a class or taking a course on how to do something because I can figure it out, maybe sometimes through the help of YouTube. But one thing that my wife and I did 13 years ago is we both acknowledged to each other that we had no idea how to do something. And so we actually ended up going to a class for it. And you might think, well, what was it that pushed you over the edge, Matt? And it was just under, over uh, 13 years ago that our first child was born. So Amy and I both came to the conclusion that when it came to parenting, we had some things to learn, and we decided to take a class for first-time parents. Not just a class, it was just a one-time little seminar thing. Um, and so it was us and a bunch of other uh, people who were soon-to-be first-time parents And there's two things I remember from that class. Number one, they handed out to us these little baby doll mannequin-type things, which were really creepy. But the thing they did was they, they handed them first to the dad. And they said, here, take this. And as I surveyed the room, like, there was a look of horror on all of our faces because it was just dawning on us that this was real. Like, it was about to happen. We were going to be first-time dads. And so there was this look of horror as we were like, oh, my goodness, what did we get ourselves into? That was one thing that I remember. The other thing I remember is a, a principle that they really pushed into us that I was not expecting to hear. Now, I had to pay money to hear this. I'm going to give it to you guys for free, but there was one thing they kept instilling in us over and over and over again throughout this seminar when it comes to how to parent or how to raise a child. And the statement they said was simply this, take care of yourself first. And that statement, it, it, it seemed off to me in that moment. Because isn't the whole idea of parenting that you put the child first, you put their needs first? But as we welcomed Jacqueline into the world and then two other kids after that, I began to realize the wisdom of this because if mom isn't in a good place, she won't be in a position to help her child. If dad isn't in a good place, he won't be in a position to help his wife and that'll put her in a bad place and she won't be in a position to help the child. There's... There's this wisdom behind putting yourself in a good place first, taking care of yourself first, so that then you can go and care for those you need to care for. And by the way, this applies well beyond parenting. This is a marriage thing. This is an everything thing, and that's why I'm actually bringing it up today. This is part three of the art of neighboring, and for the first two weeks, we we were really practical with principles and godly godly principles and godly wisdom about what it means to be a neighbor and how to neighbor and some obstacles that might get in the way. But today for part three, due to the circumstances in this world, we wanted to pause this series and just ask you how you're doing. Because if you're not in a good place, you won't be good at neighboring. You might be able to, from time to time, push it out of yourself to force yourself to do things that you know are right as a neighbor, but it will not be sustainable if you yourself are in a bad place. You can't, I'll say it this way, you can't maintain good neighboring unless you stay in a good place, unless you take care of yourself first. And what I know is, here's the thing, the reason why we're doing this part three now Is because we're aware of what's going on in the world if we had preached through this series six months ago or a year ago we probably wouldn't be talking about this today but with 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 things the way they are we knew it was time to to, to just pause on looking at your neighbor out there and how to neighbor them and just to say how are you doing are you in a good place as I prepared for the message today, one thing that really stood out is how the story of the Good Samaritan illustrates this in so many ways. Now, the disclaimer is that I know the Good Samaritan was a parable. It's a fictional story that Jesus made up to teach a truth. So the characters we see in it are made up. They, they never lived. They never existed. But as you take this principle of taking care of yourself first and you apply it to that story, there's all sorts of things that start to come up. The good Samaritan had to be in a good place in order for him to be able to help that poor person who was beat up and left for dead on the side of the road. And I'm not, I'm not going to reteach the whole story because we talked about it in week one, but here are some of the things that I realized this week. The good Samaritan, in order to help his neighbor to be a neighbor, he had to be in a good place in many ways. He had to be in a good place time-wise or schedule-wise. He had to have the flexibility in his schedule to be able to pause on that road, look at his neighbor in need, and help him. He had to be available. It would have been a different parable if the good Samaritan had a not-so-happy wife who was waiting for him to get home, and he was going to get in trouble, and, sorry, guy, I don't have time to help you because i got to get home today. It would have been a different story if that good Samaritan didn't have the time to help. And here's what I know about us today. We've been gifted time over these last four months, at least most of us. We've been given time that maybe we've never had. But yet, because of the circumstances, we're still not available. It seems like we're still isolated, we're still alone, and that can put a person in a bad place. The other thing I saw from the Good Samaritan is that he had to be in a good place financially because for him to be able to stop and give him some first aid treatment from his own supplies, and then on top of that, for this good Samaritan to take this man to an innkeeper and pay the innkeeper money to take care of him, the good Samaritan had to be in a good place financially so that he could be in a position to help. If he had been in debt or poor, he would have walked by the good Samaritan, and, or walked by the, the man who was beaten up, And he would have said, sorry, I I just don't have the resources to help you. I'm not in a position to help. And I was shocked by what I saw that's going on in our country right now with regard to being in a good place financially. What I saw was that in the last few months, as we surveyed Americans how they're doing, over 50% were worried about providing food for themselves or their family. Also, over the last few months, uh, surveying, uh, as you surveyed Americans, what, what we found is that just under 50%, 44%, are worried about making rent, about paying the mortgage, and about a third were sure that they were at least going to miss one payment. A lot of us are in a bad position financially, and at the very least, all of us are in a questionable position financially and when that is wreaking havoc on you it can keep you from being in a good place the good samaritan also had to be in a good place emotionally because if you remember the parable the samaritans and the jews were at odds they were enemies there was basically it was racism at its worst in the first century so for this Samaritan, to help this Jewish man, he had to be so certain of who he was. He had to be so resilient emotionally that he was ready to walk into a situation where others might mock him and question him and call him names. But he was strong emotionally. And here's what I know about us today. Uh, surveys show that one in three Americans are showing clinical signs of depression and anxiety. Not that they feel depressed or they feel worried, but they're, dis- they're-, they're showing clinical signs of it. We're in a fragile place, emotionally speaking, and that can put you in a bad place. And, and then finally, this is kind of a, a little deal, but kind of a big deal, too. Finan- physically, the, the Good Samaritan had to be in good physical condition to be able to lift this man up onto his donkey and then walk along with the donkey to, to the place where they were going. But maybe just one quick observation is that when anything is off schedule-wise or financially, and especially emotionally, it almost always takes a toll physically. So th- these are just some of the ways that the good Samaritan had to be in a good place in order to be the good neighbor that Jesus described him as. And I want you to ask yourself where you're at. Where are you at in this moment? Where have you been the last few months? Have you been in a good place or not? as soon as you start thinking about it, you probably, if you've been in a bad place or if you're in a bad place right now, what I know is that you're probably shying away from this question because it's bringing up some feelings of guilt and shame. Shame because people might be looking down on you for being in a bad place. Guilt because you feel like you're letting people down because you're in a bad place. And this isn't a fun thing to talk about. It's not a fun thing to get into. But what I know about being a good neighbor is that it's so important to take care of yourself first. So what we're going to do today is I'm not going to go through physical and emotional and financial and you know, schedule stuff. We're not going to go through that. But what I do want to show you is what Jesus did to help people get into a good place. A place that was so good that it allowed them to overcome the guilt and the shame and start to address these other things that were working against them. But first, I want to share this with you. This is what we're starting with. To be to be good at neighboring, you need to be in a good place. And so, for today, we're going to set aside the neighbors for a minute, and we're just going to talk about you. Where are you at? How are you doing? And to give you some sense of hope, or maybe some sense of direction, I'm going to start with this simple idea, which I'm sure everyone in the room and everyone watching online would probably agree with in a heartbeat, which is this, that Jesus was in a good place when it comes to his everything. He was just in a good place. He always knew perfectly where to draw the lines. He knew how to have compassion on the right people. He knew how to confront the people that needed to be confronted. And it was always from a good place. Now, the question is, how did he do that? And don't just say, well, he was the son of God. He could do whatever he wants. He was a human being just like me and you. How did he stay in a good place? And the answer might shock you. Do you know why Jesus could stay in a good place? It's because he took care of himself first. Sometimes you see in the the stories, the scriptures about him, you see that as things were starting to get elevated and Things were getting busy. He would withdraw from the crowd to be by himself so he could pray and talk to his father. He was in a good place. Not because he was the guru of finances or the guru of emotional health. He was a good teacher and he knew some things about that. But what brought him to a good place was something deeper, something more important and more to the core. And he gets to it in one sentence, the night before he died. The night that he was probably, (laughs) arguably, in the worst place imaginable, the eve of his death, not just death, but crucifixion, he was talking to his disciples about what put him in a good place. And he, he says it in one single sentence. He turns to his disciples the night before he died, and he says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Remember what's about to happen to him. Going to a cross to suffer in a way that I can't imagine. And yet, his heart is for his disciples. His love is for them. He's not looking for anything from them because he's received everything he needs from his father. He says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. The love that came from my father was so full and so perfect, it has filled me up in every way I need so much that I can forward that love on to you. And then he follows up with one word of application for his disciples and for me and you. As the fathers loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Now stay here. Keep this love that I have shown to you. And what he's doing here is he's changing in us our perspective of what it means to be in a good place. To be in a good place starts with the idea of grace. That's the word that Jesus used, love the, the way he used loved here is, as you might know, there's different words for that. The, the word that we often associate in English with this word is grace. And it's, it's tricky for me to explain grace because we don't really have a, a, an English word that describes it well. So first, I'm going to tell you what grace is not. And then we're gonna sh- I'm going to show you what it does. But grace is not reciprocal and it's not contractual. What that means is reciprocal love is where you love someone because they showed love for you. And unfortunately, this is kind of how a lot of relationships and maybe even marriages work where you're going to show love for this person as long as they show love to you. And you kind of have this reciprocating love that goes back and forth. The only problem is when one of you fails to love the other, the love falls apart and there's no longer that love what Jesus is talking about is not reciprocal love. It's also not contracted or contractual love. That almost sounds like contractions with childbearing, but it's not that. It's, it's the idea that you come to terms with how you're gonna love the other person and the other person's gonna re- love you and as long as you both keep your contract, you know, you'll, you'll love each other and there's that agreement. It, it almost sounds good because you've got an agreement maybe in, in, <laughs> that you've verbalized But that's not the love Jesus is talking about. It's not a love that depends on the other. Jesus said, as the Father loved me, so I love you. It's a love that can't be reciprocated. It's a love that can't be contractual. It's just a love that you can pass along, that comes to you and goes through you. Love, as Jesus explained it, is only something that you can forward to the people around you. Grace, as Jesus described it, can only be forwarded. It can't be earned. It can't be deserved. It can't be contracted out. It can't be reciprocated for. It's a one-way thing. As God has loved me, so I love you. And the reason I want to double down on this right now is because if you're going to take care of yourself first, this is what you absolutely need to know. God's love for you isn't about how you've been handling your emotions. It's not about how strong you are mental health speaking. It's not about how great your finances look. It's not about your schedule. It's not about how available you are for your neighbor. God's love for you depends on him loving you. It's his choice. As the father has loved me, so I have loved you. It's, it's a love That can only be forwarded. It can't be earned. And again, the reason I I bring this up is because I think when it comes to being in a bad place, there's so much guilt and there's so much shame that can accompany that. It's important to take a moment to remember that with God, he doesn't give you guilt. He doesn't give you shame. He, He gives you grace. He just fills you with grace. And as, as we go on here, there's, there's another element that we need to work in, and it's brought up by the disciple John, who, by the way, was there with Jesus that night before he died. Jesus was talking so much about love and loving one another, and this impressed John so much that he wrote some letters that basically expound on that idea of what it means to be loved by God and to pass that love along to others. And John brings it up so well. We're going to turn to his letter. It's 1 John chapter 4. John says, dear friends, let us love one another, not because you're guilted into it, not because you're so ashamed of yourself that you have to do it. Let us love one another because love comes from God. As God has loved me, all I do is I forward that on to you. He goes on to say, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The kind of one-way love that John is describing that forwarded love, it, it can only come from one place. And you've probably seen examples of this, where if someone is mean to you, you're not going to be nice to them. And, and in fact, this can be detrimental in a lot of cases. Sometimes one person has to take the step of just forgiving, of just doing something that's loving. And then once that step is taken, things can change. Well, in this picture, God is the one who stepped in, He forgave, He loved. And that changes things. And John says the only way you could possibly forward this is if you have first received it. Then he goes on to state it in a negative way. He says, for whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And I'll maybe put this in the context of followers of Jesus. When you act unloving, you're acting like you don't know God. Which sounds kind of harsh, but it's true, isn't it? Because if you could, in every moment of every day, remember what God has done for you, it would have a tremendous impact on your life. Um, Let me step away from the message just a minute. Can I ask you kind of a fun question? And I hope this brings a bit of a smile to your face. Was there a moment in your life where something so good happened, something so amazing happened that nothing could make you unhappy for a while? Like something so amazing happened that you couldn't be in a bad mood if you wanted to. Uh, Maybe a a silly common example comes to mind. Like if you've got your crush in high school or college, whatever it is, you know, you've got your crush and you're kind of shy, but eventually you work up the nerve to ask the person out and they say yes. Like that changes your entire day, doesn't it? I mean, everything is good. Your car could break down that day. You don't care. You know, she said yes, he said yes, and it doesn't matter what happens, you're just in a good place, you're in a good mood because of something amazing that happened. And I'm sure you all have your stories. There's that one day where something just so amazing happened that you couldn't be in a bad mood. And John is saying in these words, isn't that true of God? If you could think for, for a moment, like what that good news of what Jesus did feels like, wouldn't that put you into a place where you can't possibly be in a bad mood? And here's how John puts it. He says, for me, if I were to share my story, like what it's like for me to, to share the story of Jesus and how it changes my life, this, this is how John put it. He said, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son. Get this, God who doesn't owe us a thing He gave us the thing that he loved the most. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, the Father sent his Son to live in this horrible, wicked, suffering world. He showed his love. He sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. He didn't send him here so that he could get something from us. He came here to give us something. And then John steps back. He says, let me make this even more clear verse 10 this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us this put a smile on john's face to the point where he's saying what could possibly put me in a bad place when i know this to be true not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins just imagine how that changed john's world was john perfect No. In fact, as you look through the accounts of Jesus' life, you see John mentioned, and he goes through some periods of guilt and shame. At the end of the day, he knew this to be true. That love is not what John did for God. It's not how John was resilient or how he did things perfectly, but love is that God loved him and poured grace into him, even in times of guilt and shame. And so then he concludes in a similar way that Jesus did the night before he died. Verse 11, he says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Not because we're guilted or shamed into it, but because it's just a natural result of being loved in such a perfect and full way, we can't help but just let it pass along to the other people in our lives. Now, I want to pause real quick because when it comes to neighboring, and we're kind of bridging that gap now between being in a good place and you know, pouring out your love for the people around you, what I want to acknowledge is I think a common, a common struggle that a lot of Christians might have is to feel that it's our place to love everyone in our, in our lives and to make them all happy and to make them all fulfilled. And I, I want to counter that just real quick because this is important to know what God expects of you. When when it comes to God, neighboring does not mean you have to fill up everyone around you. That's not your job. Only God can do that. God does not expect you to empty yourself out for the sake of all the people around you because guess what? When you empty yourself out, you are not in a good place to be the neighbor that God wants you to be. Your responsibility is not to empty yourself out. Neighboring simply means that you get to pour out what God fills you with. It's not about you emptying yourself out. It's about you loving the people around you as an expression of how God loved you. And maybe uh, King David put it best where he talks about how his cup overflows. Um, Sometimes when we're trying to neighbor people, whether they're in our family or people at work, whoever it is, Sometimes, you know, we kind of bump up against them and whatever's inside of you is going to spill out. If, if what you have inside of you is guilt and shame, it's not going to be pretty when you bump into some neighbors and you're not going to be a good neighbor in those moments because what comes out, guilt and shame, it, it just makes a mess. But God is not filling you with guilt. He's not filling you with shame. He's filling you with grace. And that's what overflows. Number three. Your cup overflows with grace, not guilt. And what I want to provide for all of you, just in we're all different with regard to where we're at and what kind of a place we're in. What I want to do for all of you in the the room and for all of you listening online, I want to give you permission to take as much time as you need to let God fill you up. There's no pressure, there's no push for you to empty yourself out before you're ready. Would you let God have that time to fill you up with grace so that on his terms, all the guilt and shame can be addressed and gone gone away with? And then one day, when you're ready to let that grace overflow, it's going to be a good place for you to be. And just to, again, put this in perspective, it's not like God is expecting great things from us to be a great neighbor. Uh, Jesus, he put it this way. As he was talking to people, he was you know, telling them that if you follow my commands, if you do what I do, it's not like you're being some great superhero. But rather, Jesus put it this way. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, as you love others, as God has loved you, you should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. And that's the point with this. Being a good neighbor, it's not a superhero thing. Basically, all it means is you've been taking care of yourself first. And you've been giving God the time and the space to be able to fill you up with what you need the most. So that it's not shame, it's not guilt over where you're at that's making you react the way you are. But you get to overflow with grace to the people around you. So my application for you is this. Ask yourself the question, where are you at? Maybe there's a financial or emotional or physical or some other thing in your life that you know has been a source of making you in a bad place. The application is not to address that yet. The the application is to address the guilt and the shame that that has been leading to and to let God give you what he wants to give you. Number four, would you make space this week to ponder grace, to to let that fill you up to the point where you simply overflow what God has done for you? As God has loved me, so I have loved you. And what you'll see happen is this. You'll see yourself begin to transform. This is a God thing. You'll see yourself transform because when grace takes root in your heart, it changes the way you view things. The more you live by grace, the more you'll look at finances and health and emotions differently. And each of us needs different amounts of time and different amounts of grace for for all those things. Give yourself the time and the space that you need. But at the end of the day, what God wants is for us to live by grace and not by guilt. When it comes to the art of neighboring, especially in this season, perhaps the most important thing is to take care of yourself first. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much for the good news that I get to share with people that you've got grace that is freely given to all of us. And I know it's not an easy thing because when we start to talk about areas of life where there's been shame and guilt, and maybe even we feel like we've been controlled by things, it's not easy to address. But with you, there is power to forgive and there's power to love. With you, there is power to, to fill us up with grace to the degree that we have purpose in our lives. So for each of us this week, listening online or in the room, I pray that you would give us moments, intentional moments, where we can simply pause and, and create the time and the space where we can think about what your love means for us. So that it's not about us emptying our cup for the people around us. It's about you overflowing your love to them. I pray all these things in our amazing Savior's name, Jesus, who who conquered sin and death for us. All in his name I pray. Amen. Amen.